This episode of the This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the last 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They're democratizing AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created ZapBox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call, or you can visit zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm here with Ted Shilwitz. It's Friday, June 23rd, and it's This Week in XR. Good morning, Ted. Morning, Charlie. Nice to see you as always. For you our look, Friday you look great. Are you feeling recovered? I am. I am. What I well, the the technical term is I'm done with my short term recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for those that just happen to be listening to this podcast for the first time today, uh, <laughs> I had heart surgery a couple months ago, um, and now the long term recovery, which is basically six months or so of a little bit guarded stuff. But I'm back to doing everything, traveling. I was at a business conference this week talking about AI, as you might imagine, which is the hottest topic on the planet. Uh, So back to normal, which is good. Thanks for asking. So it looks like Roni is not going to be joining us. He's in Switzerland. Um, uh, He was kind of teasing it yesterday, but I don't see him. If he arrives, we'll bring him right in. But let's let's get to the top of the news, which is really fun this week, because Elon and uh, Zuck look like they are going uh, to have some kind of a cage fight I, at first, Zuck was saying Vegas, and I was thinking TV. But of course, uh, today people are saying it's going to be t- on Twitter and Insta, Facebook Live or uh, Instagram Live. So uh, that would be more convenient. Uh, although, you really think it's going to happen? Do you, do you actually legit think they're going to like throw down in the ring, gloves, MMA style? Like, I, really I, 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 I don't know, uh, but I will say that Z- uh, that Musk, who of course is is not a very athletic guy, even though he's four or five inches hey, taller than Zuck. Dude, yeah, he's, he's a big. big dude. And that's why he suggested in a tweet that he was going to pull the walrus, which is lay on top of Zuck, yes. because that would be his only move, because Zuck looks very trim and buff right now. Here's, uh, here's the only thing I would I would very, very humbly request if they actually do do this, is that they make the the, the pay-per-view a charity thing. Meaning, oh yeah, they have to, right? Then you donate a couple bucks to charity via via Twitter, via Facebook, via whatever you want, and hundreds of millions of dollars go to many worthy charities as opposed to their own coffers. That would be a nice thing. If they really want to fight each other to the death, then they should make all the money go to charity. They should. The money should go to research into the social harms of social media. Exactly. (laughs) But but you know the fun part is, of course, there's people who are jumping in like MMA stars who want to train Musk. So it's a, a fair fight. And then I would say if Musk really could do that kind of training, I think he would have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> does not seem like something that would keep his attention for very long. It's just, you know, the comedy of life that we all in is that this is what we have to talk about today. Right? No, well, it was a kind of a slowish news week. Uh, there's a company called Cobalt Metals that just raised $200 million from all the usual suspects. Uh, like, uh, you know, the Bill Gates Fund and Andreessen Horowitz and so forth. Uh, and they're going to use AI to assist in mining. I don't is this a, is that an AI story? I was going to ask you that. Well, you know, it's it's indicative of this, like what I refer to, I was at this big conference uh, in Utah this week. Um, 
and there was the topic du jour, of course, is everything AI. And right. what you start to discover after a while is when you get a foundational shift in technology, you immediately get the many service layers on top of it, right? So it is people building on top of something that they have felt like they've discovered and got the inline on and investor froth, which we've seen multiple times in our lives um, around, is this the service layer that's going to mean something that's going to be beneficial? I certainly think any kind of advances in mining where they can use, like we know that miners uh, of all forms now use LIDAR, right? Extensively to scan the earth. And as opposed to just doing test drilling, they actually use a technology called LIDAR, you know, to, to actually see what's under the ground and they can be more focused that way. Using AI mechanics to do that, maybe it's a parlor trick and maybe it's real, but if they could raise 200 bill um, to, to pull it off, then yeah. good on them. So, so they've raised 400 to date. So it looks like they're going to, uh, they're, they've, they've sold a lot of equity. Uh, $400 million is a significant amount yeah. of money to, to prove something out. Right. So yeah. they're obviously, yeah. but I, I have to suspect that every mining company, I was at the hexagon conference two weeks ago. Uh, they're a big uh, international tech digital transformation company. And one, you know, one of the things they try and do is work with mining companies and work with, you know, agri big agricultural conglomerates uh, to you know, use mapping and other 3D technologies. So it very much was not only an XR conference, but, you know, they crunch all this data and they call it AI. Yeah, because at the end of the day, these these service layer companies that we're talking about are always hunting for where the money wells are, right? Like where are the veins of dollars uh, that are not consumer level spending a little money on something fun like you know doing your term paper in AI, but actually using it for an enterprise level thing which they can make real money on. So I get it. It totally makes sense. So here's another AI story. This is more more uh, you know right in our strike your our strike zone, uh, which is Elvin Labs, which is the company that creates. Uh, essentially, character-based soundtracks mm -hmm. uh, based on text prompts uh, has uh, raised uh, nineteen million dollars. Uh, so, and and they're from you know a lot of insiders like uh, Instagram co-founder Mike Krieger and Brendan Iribe and uh, you know uh, Mustafa Suleiman uh, who who you know oh and O'Reilly Media. So it's the insider insider media. But is there a professional application to this? I mean, I know that there's an enterprise application, but is there a, a, is there a way this could be used to create professionally produced mainstream entertainment? Well, it's a, it's a broader question, right? Which is another thing that we talked about at this conference this week. I think it's in a lot of people's blogs. It's in a lot of discussion points is where are we sitting with the arc of AI as it relates to creative pursuits, right? And the idea of, I mean, we've seen voice generation for years, right? So this is yet another service layer on this. But again, they've raised capital. So they obviously have something to show and something to prove. But I've seen... And by the way, amateur producers, or I should say uh, low-budget producers like Ed Saatchi uh, and Eugene Chung, yeah. who, who generally produce very first-class content, uh, or, or at least have in our mediums in, in VR, uh, mm -hmm. and they've been using it in AI experiments. And it's certainly good enough for... Uh, the kinds of things they're producing, which I assume will be more kind of dreamy and ethereal, because that seems to be what uh, AI produced content does best that in science fiction and girls with guns. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, the it's a cost saving measure, right? So it's, it's an efficiency tool when, excuse me, when profit 
it's harder and harder to make in the entertainment business, which is clear if you watch the stock market these days and what large entertainment companies are going through as their next sort of moment of Zen, as we would say. Where well, and there's it's also a moment of of strikes because labor is part of this this labor is part of both the problem and the solution. So they need a seat at the table. Right. But, you know, when you start to study it through a lens of, of how technology affects industries, um, there was something I was listening to the other day. Oh, you know, it's part of this NPR series that they're doing on AI. And they were studying uh, AI through the lens of one of the biggest labor shifts and labor displacements of all time in recent time was about a century ago when you and I needed to make a phone call if we were alive then you had to use a phone operator and she patched right. it, was, it was the largest employer of women on uh, in in um in first world and second world countries basically these patch boards where right. you and i need to call each other you can't just call each other directly you have to get through the phone operator and then there was an automation moment in that phone operation system and essentially all of those workers and all of those newsreel footage that we see of the women poking in the the, uh, the patch cords were almost instantly gone. Like within a year, it was all gone. That business was gone. So uh, they were making a really interesting point that the analog of that today is various forms of AI. There will be things that will be displaced almost immediately and still have a little vestige of the leftover, kind of like bank tellers and ATMs, right? Um, where when you automate something so effectively and so efficiently, then the immediate need for the human labor just starts to dissipate very quickly. And I think over the next few years, we're going to see moments of that where things that used to require a lot of human labor will literally go away very quickly. Yeah, my concern when this happens, of course, is what we're doing is the social consequences are socialized, right? All these unemployed workers become the responsibility of you and I, but the cost savings goes to the enterprises. Right. So it's a power so, broker thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the sort of thing a centralized economy like the one China has has an advantage because they can regulate the speed of displacement, which is something in the United States that the government has no right to do. Yeah. So, oh, here's a here's a bright and cheery piece of news. Second Life has turned 20. How about that? We have uh, I want to congratulate the uh, Linden Lab founders, uh, Philip Rosedale and uh, Brad Oberwagger who uh, bought and is running the place, uh, I guess, two, uh, bought it two years ago from uh, the, um, uh, I think it was Benchmark, uh, one of the venture capital yeah, firms that was trying to get out of its, try, try to close out its 2000 vintage uh, fund. Uh, but it continues to be very profitable. Uh, there, it has 750,000 uh, monthly unique visitors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, even though, you know, obviously, 3D game worlds have gotten much bigger. I mean, you look at Fortnite with over half a billion users, uh, you know, and Second Life seems very quaint. But let us just uh, repeat the firsts that they were responsible for, right? They were uh, not only the first uh, 3D game, but they were the first uh, open sandbox right. where there is no object to the game other than to live and socialize, yeah. Uh, you know, it was the first virtual creator economy. Yeah. Uh, they introduced their own currency and they've made uh, a, a very solid business out of being a bank. And they are registered as a bank, which is very unique. Um, and so uh, they, they, you know, uh, were, as I said, part of what their charm was that they 
introduced so many new ideas at once and people who allowed themselves to get into it really did were the first to experience the metaverse as we describe it today. Yeah, so so quaint and profitable and beneficial and logical. It's almost like, you know, the little corner store in the town that just survives no matter what. Here comes Walmart, here comes Target, here comes everything. But there's always one little store that everybody loves and everybody goes to or the little local coffee shop. Or the little, it's hard to keep them alive, but the ones that do, you have it's, to get a lot of credit It's for. a, um, yeah, it is a tribute to them and also a proof that social media, once it becomes very sticky, and this is, speaks to Twitter for different reasons. Why do people stick with a platform like Second Life? Because they like it and they have friends there and they're familiar with it. You know, they've often built 20 years of assets in there that they're reluctant to abandon. And in a way, that's what happens on Twitter when you build a big following. You're reluctant to leave. I'm reluctant to leave Twitter, even though engagement has gone down and they've messed with the algorithm up and down. uh, And LinkedIn is much more active now as a result. But I'm still reluctant to leave it, even though many people who, who were also in my spot have elected to leave it. So do you think think blue sky is getting any traction at all? Or is it starting to prove that it's not, it's like clubhouse. There was a moment where press blue sky. Yes. Blue sky and post are both excellent. They're excellent, Uh, but are they locking in? Are they becoming, they don't have enough people in them. I don't get any more engagement. You know, engagement is the Holy grail. Forget about the number of followers or the number of users. Is it worth my time to post something that's just going to go by at a million miles an hour in everybody's feed and nobody will ever pay attention to it? I mean, all the social media sites now try and make sure they keep a relevant feed in front of you as often as possible because they want you to engage. That's what keeps people on the apps. And as far as I can tell the engagement, um, you know, for very well-known personalities like Scott Galloway uh, is really just a fraction of what it is on a place, you know, a, a controversial post by him can get tens of thousands of engagements. And, uh, you know, on post he gets like uh 100 or 200 it's a magnitude smaller yeah 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 and that means you know the comment strings are shorter and so forth so i, I just think it's going to be hard i think elon musk should be celebrating because it's really going to be hard for him to lose many more users than he's already lost and it would not be hard for him to get people back uh especially if they started offering better services right so it's more than just chat uh which is what you know he says he wants to uh to build so we'll see i'm i'm looking forward to the cage match you know i i don't don't know what the source of the cage match is is it the the twitter clone off of instagram that they're going to compete with twitter with i mean they have a chance just because of scale right clearly scale is related to success so twitter you know hit at exactly the right moment in 2009 um people were getting uh into their smartphones they were getting into the you, you know, idea of living through these apps. So Twitter very well timed and they vacuumed up, you know, a quarter of a billion users and then they hit a wall. Um, but it's not like it's completely disappeared. Anyway, uh, two great guests today. Uh, yeah. Our friend, John Gata, uh, who has um, got more credentials than really God. Um, you know, he's uh, worked with everybody, won an Academy Award for the bullet time effects in the Matrix. Uh, he was a senior VP for strategy at Magic Leap, where he worked closely with Roni. It's sad Roni isn't on the call. John actually introduced me to Roni. 
while I was writing a book and doing a chapter on Magic Leap. Uh, so I was interviewing him and he's like, no, you have to meet Roni. Uh, so that was back in 2017. So I love John. Recently, he was one of the authors. I did not realize this. One of the authors of Vader Immortal, which ILM X made. He's working with uh, our friend, Matt Meisnikes. This whole thing is like a, a uh, This Week in XR alumni association. Yeah, so he's working with Matt Meisnikes on Living Cities which is trying to make a, a digital twin of the physical world where we could actually interact, which is one of the most exciting ideas in XR, uh, you know, because it just suggests a whole new world of communications that that would be the metaverse, right? Uh, so, uh, and now he's chief. So that brings us to today. He is also <laughs> chief creative officer of a new company created by a guy named Kalen Gibbs, who's an ex-DeepMind engineer um, called InWorld. Uh, they were in the Disney Accelerator, uh, which is how I first saw them. Uh, but they create uh, characters for video games uh, using AI. Yeah, and John is a uh, is a veteran of the podcast now, right? We he's in the club. John, John has been on the. He's almost in the Green Jacket Club. He's I think getting, he, this is going to be the, the this is going to be his third or fourth appearance. Let me bring the guys in. Okay. Um, I can't wait to talk about this. I talked about this with them uh, at uh, AWE. And uh, it's really fun to consider the implications of it. Hey, great to be here, Charlie. Hey, good to see you, Kylan. Um, we were uh, we were just on, there's John and his label for those of you uh, watching on YouTube is Perceptualist, uh, which is as good a title for John Gaeta as I could come up with on my own. So, John, great to see you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Hi, Charlie. Uh, I was just telling Ted, one of your episodes, the most recent one, I think, where we were talking about Living Cities is among our, like, top three ever most downloaded episodes. So, I I, don't, really? I guess I guess people are interested in what you have to say. <laughs> nice to know. Yeah, yeah, yes. Welcome back. Uh, and... Uh, Roni, uh, who also has a lot to say, is in Switzerland. He, he was at the Annecy Film Festival with his new short, and I guess is uh, taking advantage of uh, the travel to Europe. And uh, Switzerland is great. So uh, anyway, we are without <laughs> Roni this morning. Okay, uh, He's skiing, but... no doubt. <laughs> so we're, uh, uh, we, I was just describing what InWorld did. And what I saw at the Disney Accelerator was uh, three CPO powered by InWorld, and sort of he knows everything. The three CPO knows everything about the Star Wars universe, including you know all the arcane stuff you know that that has happened in the past ten years since Disney's acquisition and their you know very purposeful growth of the Star Wars universe. So, um, are we ever going to see the? sentient or uh, ai driven 3cpo again i hope certainly so. <laughs> i hope yeah. so as well yeah hard to say it's uh you know it's uh up to us and our partners so yeah i mean if you if they somehow decided to put that in the you know star wars land or whatever it would become super famous it uh, would become instantly yes very very popular uh, that, level, that level of engagement and experiential, like, is that thing really talking to me uh, is kind of an amazing thing, which kind of leads me to my sort of first question, which is, as Charlie and I are now continually talking about, and I'm sure you guys are as well, um, 
are you leveraging any forms of these large commercial AI models, these language models, to start to build what your goals were within World? Or is it a separate vein? Are you doing something different than what a lot of companies are building on top of OpenAI and these various chat GPT clients and what Stability is doing and others are doing to create this type of interchange, right? This believable interchange of language. Is that something that InWorld is doing or are you doing something different? So when we first started the company, we of course just wanted to experiment with what was out there. So we started working with groups, you know, like OpenAI and Microsoft who we use some of those commercially available models to get prototypes stood up. As we've progressed and, you know, team has grown, taken on funding, we've realized that a lot of these models ultimately are meant to serve all use cases, you know, from code generation to marketing copy. And that means that the language that they're biased towards is very generic. Um, it almost has this like AI persona. People, you can almost tell, like now, once you see enough of it, you can almost tell when you read something that's generated by it. And when you think about the, you know, beloved characters that we know, there's much more to it than just, you know, saying the right thing. It's how they say it. There's like these tones, a slight vocabulary shifts. Um, and so we have started to train our own models that are really bespoke for this kind of um, idea of dialogue, as well as generating the actions and the emotions that are associated with that. And then we have like these generic models that we use for, you know, initial testing and our most of our creators use. But then when we work with larger groups, what we're starting to do is look into actually training custom models with them. So for example, taking... Uh, you know, Star Wars lore, if it, you know, to go with the example that Charlie shared and actually training on that. And that means that sort of the character becomes more biased to the specific ways of speaking, the specific references in that world, maybe even metaphors, right? Like the metaphors you may use in one universe are, are different than another. And so all those slight things, right, pile up. And I'm, I'm just listing off a few things, but it's very hard to say. And so that's important as well, because it, we have a whole integrated system with you know, voices and emotions and gestures that, you know, we, we're really trying to kind of build around. Of course, you know, we can work with groups like OpenAI and others, and we, you know, we, we love, you know, what they're building. Um, we're just finding that as we're starting to step into the space of these performative AI-powered actors effectively, um, it requires something more than these general horizontal models can provide. So this, this, this plugin architecture that uh, they announced just recently, that, that benefits you guys? You're able to use that or is it still something completely customized that you're doing? No, it's completely, so cut plugins are, are basically just a way to inject specific things into the prompts of, of GPT-4. It's not actually using any separate model. We're actually training our own models from scratch. So okay. basically okay. Getting, the GP, get, getting the GPUs, setting up the hardware, you know, getting the data sets. Um, and that gives us a lot more control as well over different parts of optimization that we can do for partners and, you know, eventually getting things onto the device, which is of course is very important for, you know, scaling and economics. So, yeah. so, so training your own models, uh, number one is no easy feat. And number two is expensive, right? I mean, you're talking about massive computer cycles and a lot of hardware and software geniuses to kind of be involved in that. So how are you, how are you navigating that in your world? You're right. It is very complex and very expensive. Uh, <laughs> But I think it's kind of like the next parallel we go into. Like, unfortunately, you know, the days of building an internet website that, you know, may take a few kids time uh, is no longer the way to build a, at least in this age of AI uh, tech company. So yeah, we have, you know, we, we've set up the day on GPUs. We've got some amazing engineers coming out of Google and Microsoft, Amazon, other groups. Um, and we, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work, not just to set up that hardware, but actually do a ton of data collection, work with partners as well to understand what are the kind of watchouts that we want to, you know, look out for to make sure there's like, there's little things, right. That as we engage with creatives, you know, is it going outside the boundaries of what it's supposed to, is it speaking appropriately? Is it using, you know, the types of tonality? So all those things are basically translated from our work in dealing with creative partners into the work that our machine learning team does 
And ultimately, we think that kind of gives us this kind of uniquely set model that will be able to pr produce these AI actors of the future. The AI actors, let's talk about that a little bit, because this is such a new idea, right? These are like independent actors, and they don't follow a script. Uh, they're trained on the world and their priorities that you that the author of the game, the game designer or, or the game writer, um, builds in. So the writer's not writing dialogue, but the writer is very much creating the world, the context, and the dialogue. In a way, the writer has to create the whole world of the game and find a way to communicate that, you know, it's 2036, you're on Mars, uh, you know, people from Mars don't like people from Earth, and so forth, right? And you have to make all that up for the character. Is that what the writer does now? Yes, but one thing I would, I would add, though, uh, Charlie, is that um, you can you can uh, add to your training data, you know, examples of speech of the way that uh, things would be said, for example. Um, and it's important because manner of speech is very important, obviously, for character persona. Um, and so the writer can actually as well have uh, influence there. I mean, any uh, great character that we know from, you know, anything that we uh, watch and, and love, um, there's always distinctive style of, of speech. So there is there are uh, ways of doing that as well. Can I also want to add on some oh, sure. <laughs> there's a there's something I like to uh, a paradigm that I'm thinking about. So if you if you at least keep the metaphor of these characters as you know AI actors, I think one thing that they have is um above human actors in in an, at least the context of virtual worlds is they have superpowers, right? They can effectively read each other's minds. If you share something with one character, it could influence another. If you say a specific thing to a character or change its relationship state, it may cause, you know, an event to happen in the world. And in that sense, they are like a, and it's almost like they're, the system plays both the role of the actor and the director and the VFX crew, right? All at once in sort of instantaneous form. And if in that way, you can kind of think about what you're really doing is, is like playing out a simulation overall. And each character acts as like a trigger to, to instigate something in the world. And that's important because characters don't just exist in a vacuum. They exist in terms of a story. And if you think about what you're doing is you're actually trying to orchestrate this play, but via your interaction to the character. Go ahead, John. Oh, uh, muted. There's construction going on behind me. I don't know if you could hear it. So I'm trying to mute no. myself while you guys are talking, although Zoom, by the way, has a great filtration system. Yeah, I couldn't it's, hear anything. You were fine. Um, so how long does it take? What's the process of training uh, one of your characters, right? I mean, you guys are working on a game. I, I forget the name of it, just so you can become the best users of your own technology. Um, and, and there's some pretty interesting characters. There's a robot detective and so forth. So how did they all get trained up? How long did it take? Well, um, that particular one, really the answer is, you know, minutes or as long as you feel like evolving and optimizing the characters that you have and the behaviors that they have. Um, the, the, amount of, um, the amount of information that you actually need to provide can be very, very minimal and the character can be up and running literally in minutes. Um, there are different ways that one can approach, um, you know, putting an identity and persona over the top, um, which include, you know, taking time to develop the, uh, you know, the common knowledge, 
uh, the role and archetype particularly are very interesting to, to, to consider. So uh, for example, you know, if a particular character is, is in, you know, within an ensemble of characters in a world, um, that character obviously has a place in the world. Uh, it has a relationship to other characters to the world and to the world. And you can take time to essentially write out its, its, its archetype independent of its persona. And what's interesting about doing it starting that way is that there can be other characters that, that fit into this archetype. So, you know, imagine that uh, one character type is, is a peasant that lives in a village, that lives in a kingdom, <laughs> right? And, and from that point of view, they would only be able to know only so much about what might take place, let's say in their village, right? And all, you know, everybody in the village could understand more or less the broad things that are about the, uh, the kingdom who rules the general large history and, and knowledge of the kingdom, but they may, they may be contained to their local world. And then within that, of course, they have a persona. It's this particular peasant, this person, right? With this uh, background um, and, uh, and motives and, and things of that nature. So why I'm pointing it out is because, um, and what makes it very interesting is when you start thinking about, you know, casting many, right, to be mixed together, you, you can start from the idea of, you know, determining what groups they're part of, where in the world they sit, um, and then who they are very specifically. If you want to give the power uh, to, let's say, a player to essentially make um, an individual within a known world that they love. You know, they could, let's say it's three, uh, let's say it's Star Wars again. You know, so a protocol droid, you know, has a, a very specific, uh, you know, sort of position in the, in the droid, you know, world. Uh, they do very specific things, right? right? And, um, and, uh, and then, uh, of course, you know, once they get out, they come out of the factory, they're assigned, you know, or sort of, begin their journey finding their master. <laughs> and, and so along that, along that, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, criteria, you can, you can say, okay, well, on top of this protocol droid archetype, I am now going to very specifically describe who it is, what their name is, who they're, who they're uh, allegiant to, and, and what uh, memories perhaps they've had, uh, and, and, and more. So those, so those, those protocol joints you're talking about are almost a metaphor for your whole company in terms of they're built <laughs> with a, a small set of instructions, and then through the story fodder of Star Wars, when they go out into the world, they start to learn things on their own, and then you know either become good or evil or neutral or or you know part of one narrative or another. So here's a philosophical question for you guys, but I'm very curious how you'll respond to. So in all the work that you're doing as a startup. You, of course, have to, you know, say laser focused on the mission at hand, right? And, and deliver because you don't have a lot of extraneous resources and employees. How often do you think, I will, I will ask you broadly the question, how often do you think about things like the terminology, what could possibly go wrong here? How often do you get to put any brain cycles and any work cycles into what, what, um, what uh, Kylan mentioned uh, as you were talking before? You said, none of this exists in a vacuum right? So gaming and gaming structure don't exist in a vacuum. People play it, people use it, people share it, 
There are bad agents around the world that can do bad things with assets and have often done it. So I'll go back to the question. How often do you guys get to think about, or anybody on your team get to think about what could possibly go wrong and how do you protect against it? I mean, every day, hours a day. I don't really know what people think um, happens within AI companies. Um, but basically like we can't work with a partner if it's not going to be safe, right? And so there's a variety of things. So, you know, there's, there's like technical issues that could go wrong. So, you know, you're in inside of a critical, you know, let's say you're talking to an AI therapist and it goes down, right? So we have groups that are always thinking about how to make sure that it's reliable and scalable and these systems work. I think what you're mainly referring to is on the LLM side. So, you know, all the way from when we train our models, the way that we build our architectures, the data sets that we collect, um, everything in there, we're basically pulling out anything that could even inspire, basically even train in the capacity for certain types of hate speech, um, certain types of, you know, uh, let's say invoking violence, uh, violence against specific groups, certain types of language that are all basically almost not even within the mind of the possible creations of a character. Then we have an entire team that's devoted to safety. So those teams basically work on you know, a variety of filters. So for example, actually flocking if a player or any user inputs language that may trigger unsafe or provocative behavior, we actually block that and filter that out. Then we have transformations inside. So let's say, you know, a user says something that could invoke something somewhat unsafe, but it's basically just like, you know, which king should I attack, right? In a fantasy game. You know, we actually try and detect is that, you know, appropriate within a specific game? Or is this, let's say, if you were if you were even within a game saying, like, hey, you know, Charlie, do you hate this specific group? Right. And the character within the game could say yes, that you also don't want to invoke that because that has real world consequences. So then we block that as well. And then before the character even says anything else, we have basically a variety of filters that detect, um, you know, is there something that was specifically talking about this topic? Let's say it's a kid's game and you don't want to talk about substance abuse, politics, finance, those kinds of things. Block all of those. Um, and we allow, you know, developers to select different settings so that it's appropriate for the world. And then we also have a variety of vocabulary that are actually disallowed. And so by the time you go through all of that, there's a heck of a lot that's, that's done. And for every single partner, there's an additional layer of filters that we actually add in. So that's basically just what's horizontally universally available. Um, and then, yeah, they're basically a lot of it. You know. That's great. That, that actually makes me feel really good that you had such an extensive answer to that because Charlie will probably nod his head and tell you when we ask that kind of question to a lot of groups, which we do on this podcast and in other places around our, our travels and our, our workday, we often get a sort of a generic talking point of, oh yeah, we're totally on it. And then when you press them and say, well, what does that mean? They have no answer other than the real truth answer is they'll get to it at some point, right? Mm -hmm. So it well, sounds like you know, you're authentically really caring about this, which I think is a very strong, a strong well, ethical code for your company. I mean, uh, we, I mean, imagine being us, we very purposefully, very early on, put ourselves in uh, this sort of, um, you know, the, um, how would I put it in the, um, oversight of Disney in terms of standards and for safety, right? We very quickly subjected ourselves to the, um, the very high bar requirements to be able to, you know, create uh, sort of safe, even family, you know, basically family forward capabilities, right? I just say capabilities because, you know, every piece of entertainment that eventually AI will be used for, it could span the entire spectrum. And of course, you're going to really need to customize around what what the property is right you don't want to uh neuter you know uh you know um you know certain kinds of uh content 
you know, because the world is whatever it happens to be, right? It has to be catered to the world. Um, but but uh, very, per I mean, like the intent here is to, um, you know, essentially provide, uh, you know, a new paintbrush uh, for, you know, for entertainment per se and new forms of entertainment generally. So, you know, that has to be able to get to mainstream, mainstream and it has to be, has to be safe um, for audiences. Um, I mean, I could right here as we talk, type anything I want to into Google and I could get, you know, all manner of <laughs> scary things back. One word, if we put one word right here, right? Yeah, um, you know, so, you know, that's already part of, you know, our, our culture, right? The ability to access, um, you know, questionable things, but it's definitely important to us because, uh, you know, there needs to be predictability for brand, you know, there needs to be predictability, you know, for age groups. Uh, and so that is something that's like, literally it's, it, I would say, I would, I would actually say it's probably the one of the top priorities. Could you, could you create the perfect politician? <laughs> uh, yeah, game well, wow. That's a good question, Charlie. No. Um, I mean, the AI are smart, but they, in the same way that even now it's like, uh, you know, it would probably be easier to create the perfect podcast guest. And it would probably be interesting for you to bring an AI in here, but probably not have the specific uh, specificity, sensitivity of the types of answers that we give. And I think a politician has to be even more uh, like universal. The interesting thing, though, is um, it depends what you think politicians do, uh, whether they actually, you know, develop in, like novel ideas or they just go towards the mean. Because basically, what what these models are trained to do, at least the ones that are trained on the entire internet and kind of horizontal use cases, is they're meant to kind of convey the most average statements to any given utterance, right? So, it's it could, for example, at least give you an approximation of what most people would have responded to that question like. And that could be interesting for use in politics and these kinds of things. That's but a super good I, idea, by the way, what you brought up. Charlie, we should think about having an AI guest on the podcast and see how it goes. Maybe our in-world friends will help us achieve that. And I mentioned that NPR has been experimenting with this too. There was a couple of, of uh, so I think it's called Planet Money is their uh, podcast that they do, one of the many NPR podcasts, but they have been using AI and tech testing like how dangerous it might be to their jobs and their and their uh, their um, process forward. But I think it's a good idea, Charlie. Don't you think we should have an AI guest at some point? Well, you know, Ed Saatchi uh, tried to take Lucy out of the, you know, the AI character who's the star of Wolves in the Wall. He tried to take Lucy out of that movie. And one year at South by Southwest, uh, Lucy appeared as a filmmaker Right. She collaborated with several panelists to create a short film. And, you know, she another experiment Ed did was making Lucy your friend uh, via text. So there's actually a, an emotional AI uh, project, which has raised quite a lot of money just to be your uh, personal companion. Uh, and it'll add, it'll learn personal things about you and be kind of your pocket therapist or your pocket cheerleader. Uh, so a different way of thinking about a virtual assistant. Um, but it does beg the question, do you think virtual assistants will have personalities? And do you think your technology could be perhaps something that drives that? Um, no doubt. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of the natural uh, evolution, isn't it? I mean, 
Uh, personal assistance, well, you know, if Roni was here, he'd have something to say about this right now. Um, the, the idea of a companion is very uh, obviously attractive to many, right? It could be the most attractive idea. Um, the question is, you know, what makes a perfect companion to you, right? Uh, what is the right, who, who, what kind of people do you attract as friends? What kind of people do you be, befriend? And like, why is that, right? What is it that you're attracted to? So there is definitely, um, you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, the potential, right, of having um, compliments made to you. And the question is, what kind of friend do you want? Do you want a friend who just is subservient to you? Or do you want a friend who's really like, you know, there to, to, to pro prompt and provoke you, right, in really good ways, hopefully, mostly. Um, so the, the answer is for sure, there's going to go, it's gonna go in that direction. It is actually uh, something I wondered about years back before I started getting involved with, with these guys. I always wondered, you know, will, these, uh, will these companies like Google or, or, uh, or uh, Microsoft, you know, will they, will they really start moving towards personified agents? Um, and the, there's a big question is that, you know, do you trust, right? Do you trust these agents is like probably on top of the list. Yeah. What does it, what does it take um, to, uh, to actually feel trust for something that's, uh, that's uh, virtual? And I think uh, that's, that's a big thing, yeah. There's also something I think um, generally, I know we're, we're gonna wrap up soon, um, that we see a lot of AI companies, I think going after what I see as like these productivity use cases, right? Like helping people be more effective and efficient. I think the reality is most people work, uh, let's say on average, a maximum of eight hours a day. And if you're actually working for eight hours a day, wow, like you're um, yeah, good, good on you. Because I think most people spend most of their time engaging with some form of media or recreation that takes them out of you know, their, their immediate surroundings. So whether that's watching a movie, playing a game, reading a book, the way we sort of entertain ourselves is by transporting ourselves to other worlds. And I think that's kind of like what we're focused on with InWorld is no. not necessarily just those productivity use cases, which I think are great, but you know, there's lots of other folks also looking at that. But how do we create AI that improves the ability for people to engage in the in media the way that they enjoy and the way that gives them that sort of satisfying extension of their current reality or their current world into these sort of immersive fictitious worlds and and i think this is you know for basically since you know writing and, and reading well literacy at least began and even oral storytelling we've always been doing this and this is how we've entertained ourselves and each other and so i think that's sort of what we're mainly targeting so wrap-up question um where can we see your work where can a listener of this podcast start to understand or interact with the characters you're creating yeah, if you just go to inworld.ai, um, you can either go straight to our studio and create your own, or you can head to the demos and interact with characters. There's also games that we're now hosting there that are created by others. Um, we also just released um, Inworld Origins, which John produced, um, which uh, was uh, released on Steam. So you can go there and download that. So um, I'm not sure, John, if you want to highlight any other projects. Uh, well, there's a lot, a lot in the hopper, but that's a good start. I would try. Uh, um, there's a lot going on over there at Steamfest. I would, I would participate in that if you're, uh, if you're uh, interested. This particular week, that's it's a, uh, it's a good scene over there. Uh, say that again. I'm not sure that came through clearly for the listeners. 
uh, go look up Origins on Steam Fest this week. Oh, Steam Fest. Okay. Yes. Uh, that sounds great. Steam Fest is the um, distribution platform for PC games. Yeah. Uh, just in case listeners aren't aware of it, Ted, you had a hard stop at 8.45 and we hit it. We hit it hard. Kalen uh, and John, always a pleasure to work with you guys. Uh, your insights today were terrific. Good episode, right, Ted? Yeah, terrific. Really interesting conversation today, guys. Thank you. All right. Amazing. Great, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Have a great weekend, everybody. Ciao. Bye. Bye.